chapter 3. My text is verse 10, but I'll read for verse 7 to give us a bit of context. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends of, on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and will share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the, right, the resurrection from the dead, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let us approach our God in prayer. Our Father, we have come once again before your word. We ask for your help, that you would help us, O God, to see what is written in your word beyond just an intellectual grasping of the truths contained within, may our hearts respond to this truth, and may our lives be transformed as a result of the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. The American preacher, Stephen Lawson, some of us may know him, he normally preaches at, at Shepherd's Conference, he has a ministry called One Passion Ministries, and uh, he's a very, very... Um, Popular preacher, he preaches G3 conference, very reformed conference. He used to be a pastor uh, in the Southern Baptist Church, but uh, a lot of things happened and he was pushed out, not like Jonathan Edwards. In one of his books, he, he gives a story that I want to share with us this evening. One leading seminary in the United States of America wanted to make their seminary curriculum better. And so what they did was to contact all of the alumni that they could contact. These were graduates who had left the seminary, trained in the seminary, and many of whom were pastors in churches scattered across the United States. And the question that they asked these men, most of whom were pastors, was simple. In what areas do you wish you had received better instruction? In what areas? Because these men had spent three to four years studying systematic theology, church history, Greek and Hebrew, a lot of things. And the answer that this man gave was surprising and shocking, he says. And the answer they gave was, how do I live the Christian life? How do I live the Christian life? Many of these men were pastors. They are going through the most rigorous training, because this was a top seminar in the U.S. They knew how to read the Bible in Greek. And they knew how to read the New Old Testament in Hebrew. They knew church history. They knew who Aquinas was and Athanasius, and they knew all the classifications of all the ages. They knew systematic theology. They knew all of these things. But the question that they had was, how do I live the Christian life? What is the Christian life? What is the Christian life? 
Because that's what Paul is talking about in the entire Philippians chapter 3. A Christian is a man or a woman who has a vital living relationship with God. But you would think that the person who has the most training in theology would know how to live the Christian life, would know how to enjoy communion with God. You think the person who has the most knowledge would have the best Christian experience. That's what you would think. And two experiences happened in my life recently that made me think about this issue deeply. On Tuesday, Franklin came back from school and I was back there at the church and he met me and told me he had an assignment on African Proverbs. And the first question was, why would you tell me you have an assignment on African Proverbs? I'm not the one who does the assignment. And it happened to be that Franklin told his mother that Uncle Eliasa is very wise. You should be able to do this assignment. He's wise. And I was thinking, why would Franklin say I am wise? So I went to meet Franklin and I asked him, I said, Franklin, why did you say I am wise and I'll, that I'll be able to help you with your assignment on African Proverbs? And he, he thought about it. I said, is it because I preach? Franklin said, no. Why? He said, it's because you read a lot of books. The kind of books you read, you read a lot of books. Now, it, it looks very simple and innocent, but that's how we sometimes think in church. That the man who reads the most should know God the most. That the man who is wise in theological things would be the best Christian amongst us. Recently, I connected with a brother. He currently lives in the Southwest. We told his name. I listen to this sometimes anyway. And uh, currently, a student at uh, the seminary in Obamosho, the Nigerian Baptist Convention Seminary in Obamosho. And uh, something happened. I wrote an article for a parachurch organization. He already connected with me and, and all that. And after a few weeks, he asked me, he said, have you been formally trained? And I said, no. And he was like, you, you write as somebody who has been trained. Now, I couldn't respond to that. Because this is our culture in church. We think that if this person actually knows how to break down theological terms, this person will know God. He will know how to live the Christian life. You should be a growing Christian. You should be a Christian who has a, a, a living, vital communion with God. But it's not always the case. The biggest apostates you know of, most of them, were not apostates because they did not know. If you understand what I'm saying. That the people who left the faith did not live because they did not have information. Many of the people who leave the faith, popular people like Joshua Harris and some of them that you know of, were big shots. They attended conferences, they preached in conferences, many of them had degrees. So they knew, they had intellectual grasping of the truths of the Bible. But it is not the same thing as knowing how to live the Christian life and knowing how to enjoy communion with God. They are not the same thing. And I said this this evening, and the only reason why I'm saying this is, is because there are some of us here who have not received so much education in life. And sometimes it can get intimidating. When you come to a church like this where most people have, maybe half of the people have degrees, and they have read some of the works of Calvin, but then you try to read it and you do not understand what he was saying, and then you think, oh, I cannot know God because I cannot grasp this. I don't have a seminary degree, so I cannot know God. I want to learn Greek. Why? Because if I learn Greek, I will know God. 
I need to catch up on systematic theology. Why? Because if I get all of these things, I will know God. I'm not saying those things are not important. I am saying that even if you don't have the opportunity to get those things, you can live the Christian life. You can enjoy a life of constant, sweet communion with God. What is my aim this evening? Simple. I want to remind us of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live the Christian life. Just an aspect of it. It's a new year, I know. And people say, new year, new me. But it should be new year, same me, because I am a Christian. And the same things I have done last year, if I was actually living the Christian life, as I should, should be the same things I do this year. In the text before us, we see this point being expounded by the Apostle Paul. In fact, I could say that the entire Philippians chapter 3 is a chapter where Paul is trying to explain to these folks at Philippi what the Christian life is meant to be like. For those of us who were constant in our Sunday schools Sunday school last year, we looked at how the church at Philippi was planted. It was the first church to be planted in Europe. In Acts chapter 16, 16, the Apostle Paul and his companions went to Philippi. But when they got there, the minimum number of men required to form a synagogue was not present. You know how Paul would do. When Paul hits a city, he looks for the synagogue on Sabbath, he goes there and discusses with them. At Philippi, Paul did, did meet those men. So what did Paul do? Paul and his companions went to a prayer place, prayer meeting of women. And Lydia was saved. And the church at Philippi was born. Many years later, the Apostle Paul is in prison. The book of Philippians is called one of the prison episodes. Apostle Paul is in prison. And these folks at Philippi were concerned about his well-being. So they sent a man called Epaphroditus or Epaphroditus to go check on Paul. And they gave him a gift. So he took it from Philippi and went to meet Paul in prison. And that is when Paul now wrote this letter to them. In the early church, because many of the converts were Jews before becoming Christians, and another set of converts were Gentiles before, before becoming Christian, a lot of tension existed between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. For those of us who have been coming to our Bible studies, Romans chapter 14, 15 highlights some of these issues for us. Same thing in Paul's letters to Corinth. Some of the Jews had issues with observance of days. Some had issues with food offered to idols. And all of these issues existed in the church. But certain men in Philippi took this teaching. They took it to the extreme. This is not just like uh, you are trying to understand something. They took it to the extreme. I know what they began to teach. That even though you have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you need circumcision. You need to keep certain points of the law of Moses before you can actually be saved. I know what Paul began to do. Paul began to highlight his credentials. He began to, he began to highlight the things he, he had accomplished for himself. According to the law, Paul said, I was blameless. A Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. He began to list all of these things. I know what Paul was saying. Paul was trying to, to tell these people that if a man could have been saved by keeping the law, would have been saved. If a man ever in the history of the world could have been saved by observing line by line of the law, Paul would have been saved. But this confusion entered into the church at Philippi. How might, how can I be saved? 
And how do I live out this faith? And Paul says something profound in verse 8. He said, I count everything as loss. So all his academic degrees, everything he learned under Gamaliel, all of his accomplishments as a Pharisee, big guy, I mean, Paul was a big guy. He wasn't a small guy. Imagine, he took letters from the chief priests to persecute the Christians. This was no small guy. He was, he was a top-ranking official. Top-ranking officer. Well-known in those circles. He said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So for the sake of this righteousness that is gotten apart from the law, I count my own personal righteousness as, you know how the King James put it, as dumb. Dumb. Feces. That's how I count it. Isn't this what it means to be a Christian? Because sometimes in our, so many of our circles, many people brag in what they have accomplished for themselves. You hear this sometimes in certain places. That uh, although it seems very humble, by the grace of God, we have never, before I, I got married, I never had relations with somebody else. And that was before you became a Christian. So why are you bringing it up now? Why? It's like you are, you are still attaching something. Paul said everything. They are not bad things, though. And his descent was, was noble to me. It was of noble birth. Yes. He had double nationalities. But he said, I count everything as well. But in verse 10, Paul makes a shift. And the NIV captures it in a sense better. Paul says, I want to know him. He has already said he has, he has a knowledge of Jesus Christ already upon being saved. But he says, I want to know him. Paul is giving us here his holy ambition. Since we are reflecting on the new year, I could call this Paul's holy resolution. It's his resolution. His resolution is that he may know Christ. But instead of this merely being a new year resolution, this was a resolution for life. This was not a resolution for 2022, because I must put that out here. We are not, I'm not trying to say that what Paul is teaching us is that at the start of 2022, we should have this resolution. So for Paul, this was his resolution in 2022, in 2020, 2021, 2022, it will be his resolution in 2020, 2013, 2050, 21, 2100, if Christ dies. It's a resolution for life, not a one-time thing. Paul would say, New Year old me, basically. Because this has been his resolution for 30 years. It's not a resolution he just picked up in the prison. It's not a resolution he picked up by writing to the church at Philippi. It's a resolution that he had had from the very first day he was apprehended by Christ on the road to Damascus. And what is this ambition? What is this resolution? That I may know him. My goal is to know him. Let us observe, first of all, that Paul's knowledge had an object. Paul is not just shooting missiles. He said, my goal is to know him. Who is the him? Christ. Paul wanted to know a person. Paul was not just concerned with gaining information if he did not know the person. As we are seated down 
right here this evening. There is nobody here that can say he knows the president. You can know about the president. As a matter of fact, you might have been following his political journey from the early 80s when he had his troubles with Shehu Shadari, which eventually led to the military coup. You might have followed his journey when he was uh, uh, president, military president. You might have followed his journey through when he was contesting for elections. You might have read his biography. You might be able to uh, properly articulate his uh, political philosophy, but you don't know him. You know about him. You see, the acquiring of knowledge alone, it doesn't give you knowledge of Christ. When I was much younger, you know one of the things I thought? Because we're told that in order to understand the subject, you have to read the best books on the subject. So I said, I will read some of the best books on the topic of knowing God. Some of us know some of those books. A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God, J.I. Parker's Knowing God, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. And I thought that by reading these books, I would come to know God. I was thinking that the acquiring of information is what it means to know God. That's not what it means to know God. A man can have all the knowledge about Christ and still not know him. The mere listening of biblical preaching does not mean a man knows God. Doesn't mean he knows Christ. You can listen to all of the lectures of Sproul on the holiness of God and have not the faintest idea of what it means that God is holy. You could listen to series upon series on any subject on the attributes of God and it still will not give you a knowledge of God because information alone does not give this knowledge of Christ. You can know about him. You can tell us a lot of things about Christ. Last week I was doing a study, a research, and I went on YouTube and somebody who was not a Christian she was not a Christian. But she broke down history for me in a way I've never seen in my life. Bible history, not secular history. She took the Bible timeline and broke it apart into pieces. But she was not a Christian. To know Christ, you want to know a person. Paul wants to know a person. Not just ideas about the person. The interesting thing about us today is that many of us know a lot of things about Christ, but we have not come to know him. Not interesting only, but sad. That there are many people in church today who can tell you a lot of things about the attributes of God. Oh, you want to talk about the aseity of God? I'm up today. Let me give you the latest book on the aseity of God. Oh, you want to talk about the sovereignty of God? I have the best messages on my laptop on God's sovereignty. What do you want to talk about? I have it. But that alone is not what gives knowledge. Let us consider the nature of Paul's knowledge. First of all, this is a personal knowledge. Personal and intimate knowledge that Paul is talking about. That I may know him. I, Paul, may know him. You know, today we talk about our culture being very individualistic. But even yet, I think we are very communal. We are very communal. It's not bad to be communal. The church of God is the family of God. It's a community of faith. It's not bad to be communal. But I see this thing happen a lot of times where Christians think that 
The knowledge of God can be gotten in a group. That if we flow together, we can know God. I'm not mocking anybody here this morning, this evening. Don't take me wrong. But at the start of the year like this, there are many churches who have a unified Bible reading plan. So the aim is that every single member of the church is going to read that same, read the Bible with that same plan. Some people have books that they read every month, fixed books, such and such and such. Itemize, you read it every month, you review, and so they say we grow as a community. But that's not how it works. This morning when Luke chapter 13, there are two groups of people that left this church this morning. They all had the same message. Maybe multiple groups of people, or two major groups of people. The first group of people were those who took this message and applied it to themselves. See, I'm not trying to say because I preached the sermon and everybody applied it. I know Jesus even said it. There were people here this morning who just heard the message and went home, and at this moment cannot tell you what they did. Because growth doesn't happen in a group. The knowledge of God does not happen in a group. It is an individual thing. It's individual. It's me saying, I want to know God. Yes, we grow at a church, as a church, but growth as a church is only possible when the individuals grow. The, the best player in the world, arguably, was being interviewed a few days ago, and he was complaining about his teammates. And what was he saying? He said, these young boys of 18, 19, 20, after the training, they want to go home. They want to go home. He said, when I was 18, 19, 20, we don't used to go home. We would stay back after training to work and work hard. And it shows in the performances. Because what makes a good football team or a basketball team is not that you have a Michael Jordan and you have mediocres. It's not that you have a Messi and you have mediocres. It's that each individual player is working well. That's how the team can win the Champions League or the World Cup. Take any player in the world, anybody that you think is a good player in team sports and put him in a mediocre team and he becomes mediocre. The team can't do anything. We must perish the idea that the knowledge of God is something we do in group. Let us gather together. There's a program here. Let us run. Let us meet. Let us meet. Let us meet. If a man has not decided in his own heart as a Christian to know God, forget it. We must be able to say like the English son, you are my friend. You are my brother. You are my God. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Not a good thing. He's our Lord, yes, but can you say that he's my, my Lord? Because true knowledge of Christ is both personal and intimate. Go and read the letters of Paul. Please read the letters of Paul. Paul was not talking about a distant Christ that he told him off. Many times when we talk, we are talking about a Jesus Christ that we learn through a medium. Yes. We have read Calvin, and Calvin told us something of Christ, and we say we know Christ. We have read the glory of Christ by John Owen, or the death of death in the death of Christ, and we take that and we rehash it and say we know Christ. It is personal. It is intimate. You see, I think we should stop singing certain songs in church. I think we should. I know we would, but I think we should. Last week Sunday we sang a particular song 
And when I sat down to listen at the words I was saying, I was struck. He said, Jesus, you are my all in all. It is not, it is not, forget, it's not, it's not a good thing. You are my strength when I am weak. Is that true? <laughs> Do you really know him as your strength when you are weak? Or is your partner, your friend, your strength? You are the treasure that I see. Is that really true? You see, it is not enough to say these things, to rehash what people have said. That I, it's in my strength. I know it. I have an experience of this. I know it deep in my own being. That is my strength. He's a friend that is closer than a brother. I know it. I don't know what the Christian man is. He's not this. And he is in a relationship with God. He knows God personally. He knows Christ intimately. Secondly, this knowledge comes by illumination. This knowledge that Paul is talking about can only come about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is only knowledge that a man can enter by himself. Usually we talk about the saving knowledge of Christ. Paul already alluded to this in the earlier verses. When a man comes to Christ, the Holy Spirit gives a saving knowledge of Christ. So that man or woman gets to see his or her sin. That's when I begin to see my need for Christ. I say, I'm a sinner. I have sinned against God. I deserve the wrath of God. I need Christ. That is saving knowledge being given by the Holy Spirit. But you know what I noticed? Most of us are content with that. We said, okay. Okay. We have been saved. We have saving knowledge of Christ. Let us go and sit down. You see what Paul is saying in verse 10? It's not saving knowledge. He's probably not talking about saving knowledge. He had received saving knowledge on the road to Damascus. He knew him. He knew Christ. He was able to say, who are you, Lord? He knew Christ. He had written letters upon letters. He had planted many churches. So this was not a man who did not know. He had a saving knowledge. He was a saved man, an apostle of Christ. But we find him saying, I want to know him. The knowledge of Christ is not just something, the illumination of the Holy Spirit does not just come at the point of salvation. It is something that goes on along the Christian life. What did Paul pray for the church at Ephesus? Look at what he said in Ephesus chapter 1, verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your understanding enlightened. Paul wasn't talking to unbelievers. That the eyes of my understanding will be enlightened, that I may know what is the hope to which he has called me. This is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We want some of our Pentecostal brothers when they talk about Lema. Oh, do you think you can understand the Bible by your intellect? Do we think that the reason why we don't understand certain passages is because we don't have a good grasp of the English language? Is that what we think? Do we think that the Bible can be understood if I have the commentaries of John Calvin by my side, or John Gill, or Matthew Henry? Do you think that knowledge of Christ can come merely by the use of our intellect? Then we are most mistaken if we think so. Christ can only be known by a man, really known, when the Holy Spirit illuminates a man. 
The Holy Spirit doesn't give inspiration again. Inspiration has ended. But the Holy Spirit illuminates the text of Scripture. Those men in Jesus' time, they knew the Old Testament. But Jesus said, you read it and you don't know me. You don't see me. You can read the Bible, even cover to cover everything and still don't know. You have no faint idea. Not the faintest idea of who Jesus Christ is. Because the knowledge of Christ, true knowledge comes by the working of the Holy Spirit. And this does not just stop when we are saved. It's a daily thing. It's a lifetime thing. Can we say like the hymn writer, that Spirit of God, my teacher, be showing the things of Christ to me every day. Now when I come before my Bible, what I am looking for, I know we don't want to say very much, but is that the Holy Spirit will take the very text of Scripture and illuminate it for me. It's not just about knowing what the Bible says. You can know what the Bible says and still don't know what the Bible says. That the Holy Spirit will illuminate a man. Sir, this knowledge is a progressive knowledge. Paul says that I may know him. One translation puts it well. I want to know him more. I want to know him more. We don't get that language again in our circles. More, more, more. We used to say it a lot of words, but it charismatic. One commentator on this text says Paul is imperfections. And I agree with him with an ethics. He says Paul is in a sense a perfectionist. What does it mean? We don't believe in perfectionism. But there's this idea that the Christian life is supposed to be a mediocre life. Yes. Give an example. The topic of remaining sin. You hear this a lot of times that after all, we can't be free from sin. Even among Christians. That we cannot be free from sin. That this struggle will, will continue for life. And what this person is saying is the person has a lost problem. The person has a cheating, a lying problem. And the person is using this idea that uh, because we have indwelling sin, we cannot be free from sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I write to you that you do not sin. John would not have wrote that if he did not know that there's a possibility of victory over sin. So we are mediocre. We aim for nothing, basically. Okay, if I sin every day, after all, God will forgive me. What is that sense of seeking for perfection? We won't attain it, of course. We won't attain it this side of eternity. Where is that sense of seeking for freedom from sin? Where is it? Many of us have made peace with our sin. Because, of course, we will be free from the presence of sin in eternity. Paul is a perfectionist in what sense? In this sense. And he said, I want to know him more. He knew him. See, if there was a man who knew Christ, it was Paul. Have you read his letters? His letters kept the brightest mind in the church. Over the centuries, busy. Just the book of Romans. Theologians upon theologians have stopped there and they've been able to say, Oh, my, what a letter. He knew Christ. Have you read his letter to the Galatians? He knew Christ. His letter to the Corinthians? He knew Christ. This was only a man who did not know Christ. But he said, I want to know him more. This was possibly the last imprisonment of Paul before he died. This was after 30 years of gospel ministry, planting tens of churches, discipling hundreds or maybe even thousands of Christian men and women, 
He says that I want to know Christ. The knowledge of Christ is meant to be progressive. It is meant to be progressive. This is the aim of a Christian on a daily basis. I want to know Christ more. We should be more professionalistic in our faith. You can't know him entirely. See, a man can live 100 years on earth seeking Christ and he will still not have scratched the surface of who he is. His infinite glory, his majesty, his wisdom, his grace. You can be seeking for him for a lifetime, but you will never get enough of him. More about Jesus would I know. That's what the hymn writer said. But is that our own cry? Is that the cry of our hearts? So I find there are many hindrances to this desire to know Christ more. And I'll give us two this evening before we go. Number one, satisfaction. There seems to be this sense of we are okay in the church today. I don't know if you've sensed it. We are okay. We are fine. <laughs> we know it. <laughs> what do you mean? We know what Romans said. Romans 1 to 3, Paul said. Romans 4 to Paul said. Paul said. We know the Bible. We know everything from cover to cover. And so we are just there, content. You see, the Christian man is a discontented man. The Christian woman is a discontented woman. There seems to be too much satisfaction amongst us. We are satisfied when we are spiritual. Spiritual growth seems to be a forgotten thing. You remember the days you fasted? Not because you wanted a car. You skipped meals. Not because you wanted promotion in the office, but because in your hearts of hearts you wanted to know Christ. What is that? Or is it that we have become reformed? We don't do those things again? What does it mean to be reformed? Let me ask us that question. What does it mean to be reformed? Two weeks ago, I saw a man arguing on Facebook the difference between being reformed and being Calvinist. What's the point of that? <laughs> so that the reformed person is not a Calvinist, the Calvinist is not a reformed person, and the argument was just going up and down, up and down, left, right, center. What does it mean to be reformed? It's not to be biblical. Paul said he did his work for the gospel. Second Corinthians. In hungers. In what? In fastings. Many people have come to that text to say, yeah, Paul was just talking about normal hunger. He wasn't talking about normal hunger. There was a hunger that was inflicted upon him because of his circumstances. And there was a hunger he inflicted upon himself because he desired something more than food. We seem to have dissatisfaction with where we are. We are reformed. We have the doctrine. We are like Job's friends. We are the people and knowledge. We know everything. Nobody is there to know anymore. We know the ten no signs of systematic theology. We have read the best books on, Bible, on church history. We know everything. Ah, we are too satisfied. When was the last time you prayed that I may know Christ and you took out time to fast that I may know Christ? I'm not talking about theoretical theology. I'm talking about the Christian life. When was the last time you came before the word of God? You were not doing gymnastics. You knelt on your knees and pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see Christ in the text. Or is that a forgotten thing? We don't do that anymore. We just read books. Is that, is that what it is? When was the last time you even took Calvin's Institutes? And you said, God, you show Calvin this thing. How, let me understand it. When was the last time we did that? We are just satisfied. 
We have grown fat. We have become lazy. This was Paul's ambition. That I know him. More, more, more. I will finish knowing him here, but my heart's desire and the pursuit of my heart and my life is to know Christ. Another reason is spiritually indecent. For all our talk of being biblical, we don't read the Bible, we don't pray. And I find that very troubling. I'm very serious, I'm speaking from my heart today. I find that very troubling. Meet the average person who comes and calls himself a reformed Christian, whether it's on WhatsApp or on Facebook, and ask him when was the last time he went through scripture. You'll be shocked. You'll be very shocked. Ask him when was the last time he prayed. He really prayed. You'll be shocked. We call ourselves reformed, but we have no prayer lives. We don't pray. We don't fast. We don't even read the Bible. We're so lazy many times. A man cannot know Christ outside the scripture, outside serious Bible study, outside serious prayer, outside serious meditation, outside serious contemplation. A man will not know Christ like that. I forgot who said this. He said, the scripture is full of, full of gold, but it won't be known by the lazy man who just scattered. He's a man who did this. It takes seriousness to know Christ. It takes, it takes a seriousness of mind, of devotion, of focus. Perhaps our argument on Facebook is just to show that we really don't know. It's to show our lack of fruit bearing, like we said this morning. Perhaps our arguments every day we are shouting at people because we don't even know that. Because sometimes activity can be used to, to mask the lack of productivity. A man has not read his Bible for six months, but he's arguing about whether. Oh, that, that's a Christian life. That we may know Christ. That we may know Christ. So we end where we began. What is the Christian life? If not that a man is a vital living communion with Christ. What is the Christian life? If not that a man grows in knowledge of Christ, not just about Christ. What is the Christian life if not that we know Christ? It's a new year. And I want us to make this not just our aim for 2022, but our lives. Every year is the same old me. The same old me seeking Christ. The same old me pressing on, pressing on to know the Lord. The same old me longing to know Him more, to know more of His grace, to know more of His joy, to know more of Him, His person. To know more of the work he has done for my soul. New Year should be the same old Christian. May the Lord bless his word in our hearts. Amen.